Friends, let's open in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6, as we wind down our time in this first of three pastoral epistles that we're going to be with, I'm just going to read a few verses from the end of Paul's letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 17. Hear now God's word. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray together. That's what we want, Jesus. We want to take hold of that which is truly life. Would you teach us this morning from your word? Would you change us? Would you root out idols in our heart that keep us from this kind of life? Would you transform us into the image of your son? We ask in that same son's name, Jesus. Amen. You know, I love, as we've been talking and preaching and thinking about money, to, to listen to and learn from other churches and the way the full ecclesiastical spectrum talks and thinks and acts concerning money. You guys have experienced this in different churches, how we approach tithes and offerings and givings and what different churches do. You have the full spectrum from, from the very subtle end of the spectrum where there's no real talk of money in the service. There's not even a time for offering. What we have is a donation box in the back for you to drop your, your offering in on your way out. Take that to the full other end of the spectrum in churches that, that Julie and I worshipped in in India where an offering was, was one of the central parts of the service. And it wasn't this mamby-pamby passing of the plate. The box was right here in the center of the church and people got in a single file line and came and delivered their offering in front of the pastor and the elders. Now that's, that's crazy. Uh, John was telling me that he was in a church in Grenada in which uh, they would have music playing and people didn't just walk up and give their offering, they danced up the center aisle and gave their offering as an act of worship, which I would love to see here. Um, And the pastor was up front calling people out by name. He was like, Jimmy, you in the back, we all know you got a job two weeks ago and I haven't seen you up here since then. Can you imagine? Um, I had a, a friend who's in our city who said that their church previously would have people fill out pledge cards where you write down what you expect to give in your tithes and offerings for the coming year, what you were trusting God for, and then you would turn in that card, and that's how they, they built their budget around that card. Well, if you failed to turn in that offering card, there would be a knock on your door and two deacons standing on your doorstep to come in and have a conversation. (laughs) We didn't see your offering card. Let's talk about the importance of this. For whatever reason, they stopped that practice here in Columbia. I don't know why. They felt like it was too intimidating for parishioners. Um, We're not planning to do that here. But if you feel like a diaconal shakedown will help you with your giving, then we can do that uh, special instance for you. Uh, but all these churches are trying to ask the question, how do we relate to money and how does money relate to the kingdom? Two weeks ago, we heard very stern warning in 1 Timothy 6 to those who desire to be rich. Paul said that this discontent angst for wealth can lead us down a very dark path of temptation, of destruction, 
of ruin and even ultimately of apostasy. Well, now he returns to the topic of wealth. This time in verse 17, he addresses the rich in this present age. And essentially what Paul is doing is saying, if we have wealth, let's learn how to use it in God's kingdom. Let's learn what to do with it. We're going to camp out in this passage for two weeks, this week and next week. Next week, we will go through these verses line by line and exegete and understand the vision he is casting. But today, I simply want to grab a hold of one phrase of application in verse 18, which is this, be generous and ready to share. I want to think about and understand what Paul means by that. And in part, because two weeks ago when we talked about money, that invited so many good questions. People had a lot of questions for me and within their life group. How do we think about the tithe? Is the tithe really for a New Testament Christian? Should the tithe be based on the gross or the net pay? Uh, Where does it go? Does it go to the local church or the parachurch? All of these are great strategic questions to ask about our money. And so I just want to camp out on this phrase and ask three questions of this text. Is the tithe required of New Testament believers? Where ought our offering go when we give it? And how does our family practice it? Give us some real practical pointers for how this is done. So let's ask each of these questions in turn. Is the tithe required of New Testament believers? This is, this is a really relevant question for our text because we've read so much about the tithe in the Old Testament, right? We've read about tithing in Leviticus and Numbers, Deuteronomy, Chronicles, Nehemiah, Malachi, God's people, his Old Testament covenant community were instructed when you glean your harvest field, when, when you your livestock gives birth, I want you to bring a full 10% of your gross income, your first fruits to the temple and give them to God as an act of worship. Well, when you hear that again and again and again in the Old Testament, we would think that as we turn to 1 Timothy 6, Paul would say, as for the rich in this present age, they should tithe, right? But Paul doesn't say that here, and in fact, you will never hear the word tithe on Paul's lips or any New Testament writer's lips. The only two instances where the tithe occurs in the New Testament is on Jesus' lips. It might be the same instance in two different Gospels in which he is rebuking the Pharisees for hiding behind their tithe and obscuring the more important work of mercy and justice. So we got to ask the question, is the tithe out? Are we done with the tithe if nobody is talking about that anymore? Well, to ask that question creates a good space, a good impetus for us to explore once again, what is the relationship between a New Testament Christian and the Old Testament moral law? If we stand alive in Christ and we go back and read our Old Testament and we hear moral commands, what do we do with those and how do they relate to us as New Testament believers? We're going to understand that by understanding three words. Our relationship to the law was under, died, and now exceeds under, died, exceed, will get us in our relationship now with the New Testament, as New Testament believers with the Old Testament law. First of all, we were under God's moral law. We were born under it. 
Now, King David, when he thinks about the law and the Psalms, he says that it's sweeter than honey. He says that it's more desired than precious gold. But that's not our first introduction to the law, right? As human beings, we're born under this thing and we feel the weight of it because truly God's perfect law exposes us that we are not perfect, and we are not good, and we are not right, and when we examine our lives against God's law, we see that we fall short of the glory of God. Romans three nineteen through 20 explains this perfectly. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who were under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since the since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You hear that? The law becomes like this spotlight on our heart and it exposes us for who we really are. If we keep this theme of money and generosity in the law, laws about generosity, they expose our greed. Laws about sharing, they expose us for being selfish people. Laws about being content with what we have and the lines that God has given us expose in our hearts that we are discontent people. We are born under the law and we feel the weight of the law, but thanks be to God, he doesn't leave us there. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, Galatians 4, 4, to redeem those who were under the law. So we begin our relationship with the law by being under it, but Christ is born under the law to redeem us under the law. And now, as sons and daughters saved by grace, we hear, we are no longer under the law, we have died to it. The law is dead to us. We are dead to it. Romans 7, 4 says, You have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. And again, in Colossians 2, 13, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So if we're carrying this theme of money in the law, at first it exposed us for who we really are, but now we're dead to the law. And when Satan approaches us and he begins to sling our sin in our face and rub it in and show us who we are and tell us that we are really selfish and greedy, we're desirous of wealth, we're discontent with what we have, we're envious, we're jealous, we're ungrateful people. When we hear that in our minds and our hearts and from the evil one and from another person, we say, you don't know the half of it. You don't know the half of my heart, Satan. I am so much worse with respect to money than anything you could accuse me of and in and of myself, I would be sunk But I'm not in and of myself. I have been redeemed by the son who was born under the law and who now cancels the law and its record of debt that stands against me. With respect to the law, we are dead and we are redeemed and alive now in Christ Jesus. So seeing our need, being born under the law, it drives us to Jesus and Jesus kills the law with respect to us. But then the third and final movement, Jesus points us back to the law 
to now exceed the demands that it gave us. We're under, we died, we exceed. We now, as New Testament Christians, have what our Old Testament forerunners never enjoyed. We now, today, experience a new and a better covenant. We now, as New Testament Christians, we live in the joy of the life and death and resurrection of the Son, Jesus. We now, as New Testament Christians, have the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us and animates us. And so it shouldn't surprise us when we turn to our New Testaments, we find incredible, miraculous acts of obedience with respect to money. You start digging around the New Testament to find commands for generosity and how we're to use our money, and you find things like Paul's commands here. Be generous and ready to share. Now that can be very ambiguous and hard to hang your hat on. That's hard and difficult to quantify. What does he mean? But as you keep digging in the New Testament, you will begin to uncover New Testament believers who animate this kind of obedience. We run headlong into a stubby little tax collector named Zacchaeus, who upon meeting Jesus face to face and is converted, he gives half of all his possessions to the poor and he pays back fourfold anyone he has defrauded. We meet a man from Cyprus whose name is Barnabas, who's an encourager, who takes his investment property that he owns and he sells it and brings every last penny to the apostles' feet to be used for distribution to the needy. You begin scratching around the New Testament and we are overwhelmed by what the Holy Spirit can do in and through us with respect to money. So back to our question, is the tithe required of New Testament believers? Let me approach that by doing a little good cop, bad cop with Pastor John Piper, whom I deeply respect. John Piper, who's the bad cop, obviously, would put it this way. If you asked him, what do we do about the tithe? He would say this. My take on tithing in America is that it is the middle class way of robbing God. Tithing to the church and spending the rest on your family is not a Christian goal. It's a diversion. That's Piper. In, in swoops the good cop. That's me. I would say, you know what, the tithe can be kind of a launching off point for us, right? It can, it can help us get our bearings with respect to money, and we can use it in our life as a way to propel us forward. Surely, when the Apostle Paul says in this text, be generous and ready to share, after he has already told us a thousand times over how much Christ has done in us and for us and how he will propel us to a life that bears fruit in the Spirit, Paul can't possibly mean by be generous anything less than the most basic tithe requirement of Old Testament believers. Surely, He means more than that. That that becomes the launching off point for us and our giving and how we think about generosity. When you take that and you hear that and you begin to ask questions like, so is the tithe pre-tax or post-tax? Is this net or gross pay? We're getting off on the wrong foot with respect to generosity. Right? That's like a dad sitting down with his teenage daughter and saying to her about sexual purity, I want you to be free from that. 
I want you to dive headlong into the intimacy of your heavenly father and for it to be unobstructed by middle school cheap thrills. And the daughter turns to the father and says, so can I not make out with my boyfriend under the bleachers? It's like, did you not hear what I'm telling you? I'm telling you what to live for and you're asking me what you can get away with. This law, this Old Testament law of the tithe is not applicable to a New Testament believer, but it is desperately relevant. The law becomes a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It guides us and directs us in the ways of God's righteousness. We use this to propel us forward. Our second question, where ought our offering go? Once we've caught a vision for what to give and how much to give, um, we're quickly overwhelmed by the options. Where do we begin to give this money that God has given us? This section really deserves a full survey of the Old and New Testaments to watch in marvel as, as funds are brought into the temple and then distributed and how that's done and how that, that morphs into what happens in the local church in the New Testament. But there's no time for that. And so I want to boil down where our wealth goes into three non-negotiable categories. There's three things, they're all M's, where our money and our generosity needs to be invested in. First, ministers and ministry. We've already talked about this in 1 Timothy 5.17. Elders who preach and teach, this same letter says, are worthy of double honor. They're worthy of their wage. We pay and support the ministry of a local church. Now, it's interesting as an aside, Paul, who has already told us that we're dead to the law, that we no longer live under it, the way he gets justification in 1 Timothy 5 to tell us that we should pay the pastors and the ministers in our midst, he does it by pointing back to the law. And he says, look, this paves a way forward for us to know what to do. Secondly, we give to mercy. We already saw this in 1 Timothy 5, 3. We honor widows and we provide for those who are in need. Just as Israel gave to widows and orphans and strangers and sojourners, so the church shows mercy through generosity. And third and finally, missions. Again and again, in places like 1 Corinthians 16, Paul expects churches to bear the financial burden for missions and church planting in their region and beyond. That's an expectation of a local church. When we have Kevin Figgins get up and share that he needs financing above and beyond his tithe, that's what the the local New Testament church does. We bear the burden to preach the gospel here at CPC, there in Lexington, and around the world. These are the three non-negotiable areas we give to ministers and ministry, to mercy and to missions. But the question still remains, um, how do we go about giving that? Do we give it to the local church or can we just kind of cut out the middleman and give it directly to the parachurch organizations that are doing this? And this is the point in the sermon that we leave the thus saith the Lord territory and we enter the auspices of a spirit-filled pastoral opinion. In other words, I'm just going to tell you what I think we should do. Um, When I read the New Testament, I see far and away the, the primary financial action happening in the context of the local church. When Paul goes to Corinth, he's on a mission to raise money for two of these M's. 
for, for mercy that's going to happen in Jerusalem and for missions, for church planning that's going to happen in Ephesus. And Paul does not address the wealthy members of the city of Corinth. He doesn't say to Stephanus and Gaius who are wealthy, who, who host the church in their house because they have houses big enough to have these churches meet in them. He doesn't say, brothers, I need to pull you aside and get some support from you to do this ministry that I'm asking you for. No, he addresses the church in Corinth because he sees the local church as one single giving unit. And so he appeals to them, support these good works. In my humble opinion, we do well when we do the work of generosity together. When we, as the church, join together under the wisdom of our elders and deacons and bring the majority of our funds to the local church to be distributed from here in these three areas, ministry and mercy and missions. Let's get real practical with this. We asked the question about the tithe. We asked where this should go. What does this specifically look like in the life of a believer? I'm going to answer the question, how does our family personally practice this? Now that feels a little crazy to share with you how we give our money and it's a little embarrassing to do. But, but this whole idea of generosity gets shrouded in mystery, right? Um, if, if a believer came to us and said, how should I read my Bible? Who amongst us wouldn't sit down with them and say, here's my Bible reading plan. This is what I do when I open my Bible. These are the questions that I ask. This is how you read your Bible. If a believer comes to us and says, what does your prayer life look like? Surely we would sit down with them and say, this is my practice. Now let's pray together so you can actually hear the way I talk to God and learn from me. Yet somehow when we get to this, this, this personal area of financial giving, if somebody asks us what generosity looks like, we say, mind your own business. Read your New Testament and figure it out on your own. This morning, we're going to cut through that, and I'm going to give you very practical ways in which our family is generous. One of the ways that has struck us um, most in our marriage and in our generosity was from a pastor who did this same thing. Pastor Tim Tinsley of First Presbyterian Church Chattanooga, he stood up in front of his congregation and said, this is the way we give. And one of the principles he said is they increase their giving percentage every single year. They trust that God, not the, not the amount, but the percentage will grow every year. Some year God blesses them and they have been able to increase their percentage, a full percentage point. Some years are really slim in their household and it becomes a tenth or a hundredth or a thousandth of a percent. But however God blesses them, they want to increase and grow in generosity. And that's a wonderful principle that, that our family has taken to heart since we heard that. Paul says here, be generous and ready to share. And we see that as kind of two arms of this idea of generosity. The first, be generous, that's like thoughtful, planned, budgeted giving. That's premeditative giving that if we don't budget and plan for, that's never ever going to happen. And the second is be ready to share. That's, that's spontaneous giving that happens as needs arrive and we respond to that. So let me just tell you what we do in each of those areas. In, in Be Generous, our family budgets to give 13% of our pre-tax income monthly. 
I'm not proud of that number. I don't celebrate that number. That's where we're starting right now. I hope and I pray we take Tim Tinsley's challenge and we grow that. I hope when you ask me five years from now what Jesus is doing in our life and in our bank account and our finances, I can boast in him that he has freed us more and grown us more. But as it stands today, we give 13%. And here's where that money goes. 10.5% gives, we give to this church, to Columbia Presbyterian Church. We believe wholeheartedly in the mission of disciple-making disciples in a church-planting church that gets really deadly serious about mercy ministry. We give wholeheartedly to that. The other 2.5% we give personally to, to missionaries and church planters. That's where we feel called to give. So our family personally supports the Figgins above and beyond what we give to the church because we want our family to have a personal relationship with church planters and with missionaries. And when we want, we want our kids who watch us gather around the dining room table and pray for the families we support to know where our priorities lie. This is why we don't spend our money wildly because we are giving to the growth of God's kingdom. That's where that money goes. Now, in terms of the area of be ready to share, this becomes uh, much harder to quantify. It becomes a very ambiguous category. We try to under budget our income. We take what we make and we put aside that 13%. We put aside the taxes and and we try to under budget what we spend because we find if we have a claim on every single dollar that comes in the door above and beyond that, we're never ready to share, right? If a need comes up, that money is already earmarked for something else and we're not ready to share that money. When Julie and I first got married, we dutifully tithed. We, we, we took 10% of our money and we gave that to the church. Um, but when a need arose, like a friend had their car break down, or we were going to take a meal to somebody, or that really nebulous area of giving, the wedding shower, um, is that mercy spending or not? It's hard to tell. I went and I took that money out of the tithe. Right, Because here you got this 10% of money just kind of sitting there waiting to be used, and here's a need, and I took it, and I spent it, and it took a long time for me to realize that's a costless generosity. When Paul says in Galatians 6 that we are to bear one another's burdens, which is another way to say we are to feel burdened by another person's burden, to take money that's already directed and already spent for God's kingdom work and just to use that, that doesn't affect us at all. Now, today, by under-budgeting our income, we are ready to share, and some months, and sometimes, that's in a way that hurts us, right? We, we had an idea about spending this money in this direction, but this need arose, and God is calling us to give to it, and we want to be ready to share in a way that we really do feel burdened to give to this burden. These are the two directions. Be generous, be ready to share. I I realize when we're talking to a room this size, we probably have as many unique financial situations in this room as we do people, right? We have students in this room. We have student loans in this room. We have credit card debt. We have job transitions. All of that's happening around us. I'm not here giving hard, fast rules, and I'm certainly, certainly not browbeating us as the church about what we're to do with respect to giving. I trust, you trust the Holy Spirit. I trust that in some powerful, miraculous, resurrection way, he can take a very ambiguous phrase, like be generous and ready to share, that that he can put that and root that in our hearts 
and that he can begin to bear Galatians 5 kind of fruit in all of us, right? He can free us more and more from the way that money clings to us. He can allow us to experience more and more the joy that comes from from sharing and giving and being generous with our money. The Spirit can do all of these things, and we trust him to do them. In time, all of us, I pray, Every believer in this room will see more and more that this discontent angst for more is a heavy burden to bear, but the yoke of Jesus's generosity is light and it's sweet and it's free. Let's pray together. That's what we want, Lord Jesus. We want to be free. We want to seize and grab a hold of and invest ourselves and our time and our money and our talents into what you call truly life. And I pray that we will do that as a church. I pray that the devil will never obscure generosity as a spiritual discipline in this church. I pray that we're honest with each other and with our greeds and that we will be a generous people free from the angst for more. You can do that. And so we ask boldly in Christ's name, amen.